Surprisingly, I actually have quite a bit to say about this movie, so I apologize in advance for the length of this review. I was surprised to find that The Mask wasn't in my collection when I sat down to work on this review, so I bought a copy in one of those four-movie-themed value packs, mostly because I hadn't seen Yes Man yet. The theme of the collection wasn't goofy combo book movies, but was, in fact, Jim Carrey movies, and four very different Jim Carrey movies at that. Throughout his career, we've discovered that Jim Carrey is one of the most versatile actors in Hollywood. At the time of The Mask, it was looking like he might be forever typecast for those off-the-wall, rubber-face roles forever. His big break being the extreme farce Ace Ventura Peck Detective, which was released the same year. He then did Dumb and Dumber, also released the same year. And while The Mask is decidedly a less stupid comedy than Dumb and Dumber, or at the least, less offensive, it's still Carrie doing the over-the-top, crazy, wild man spewing one-liners thing that made him famous. So while at first glance the choices for this collection seem to have been grabbed at random, they're strangely indicative of his career overall. You've got stupid comedy with Dumb and Dumber, like Me, Myself, and Irene and The Cable Guy. Then you've got serious dramatic role with comedic elements with The Majestic. The Truman Show also falls in that category. And with Yes Man, you've got the classic Jim Carrey comedy about the goofy, clumsy guy who's defined by a character flaw and learns to overcome that flaw through some unlikely event that changes his life. And The Mask is interesting because it also falls under that umbrella, but also undeniably presents itself like a superhero movie, even if The Mask isn't really a superhero. More on that later. So I just wanted to point out, because I think it's interesting, that you could put together a four-pack of Jim Carrey movies that fall into that formula of the guy who has a Christmas Carol-like experience, not counting Jim Carrey's Christmas Carol, of course, where some bizarre and unlikely experience makes him change his socially inept ways. Liar, liar. He's a lawyer, lies to everyone, learns to stop lying by a magical force that makes him tell the truth. Bruce Almighty. He only thinks about himself, learns to, quote, do unto others by having the pressures of being God for a few days. Yes, man. Learns to take chances by buying into an extreme philosophy of only saying yes to every request. And this is the only one, by the way, without some supernatural force behind it, unless you count Darren Stamp just on the principle of unprecedented awesomeness. And then you have The Mask, where he's a pushover and an overly nice guy with a self-esteem problem, which he learns to overcome by seeing what he would be like without any inhibitions at all. His character name is Stanley Ipkiss, which is a letter change away from being an anagram for Kiss Up. So the mask is really the start of this formula, with a pretty obvious we-all-wear-masks metaphor and a not-so-subtle message, but it's also the most stylized, visually impressive, and influential of those four. The Mask is a very unusual film, mostly because it managed to be so incredibly successful despite itself. It deviates a lot from its source material, which in the comic book movie world is usually either really smart or, more often, really damning. Blade built an entirely new mythos for the character that most people found a lot more gripping and interesting than the comics, spawned a movie franchise and a TV series, but then Catwoman was also a totally new premise and is now infamous in its badness. I've said this before, but changing things in an adaptation makes sense if A, the change will make the story more effective in its new medium, which happens a lot, or if B, the change is actually an improvement over the original work, which happens, but less frequently. I think many would agree that both of those categories are true for Blade, and neither are true for Catwoman. I give New Line a lot of props for initially attempting a project closer to what was on the page. Not because I'm a purist and think everything must be just like its source material, I've never even read a mass comic, but because the premise sounds like a pretty cool horror film. According to director Chuck Russell in his 1996 commentary, which he recorded for the Laserdisc, when New Line bought an option for a mass film, they thought they might have a new Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street franchise 
lives on their hands. In the original Dark Horse miniseries, Stanley loses all his inhibitions when he puts on the mask, kind of like in the movie, but there, the mask has a tendency to turn its wearer into an actual psychopath, not to just let him go as far as the real person might, which is why, in the film, the good guy doesn't kill when he puts the mask on, but the bad guy does. If you had nothing restraining you, you'd try to do whatever you wanted to with anyone you wanted to. In the comic, Stanley goes on a killing spree, and then, when he's aghast at his actions once he's taken the mask off, he subconsciously likes that morbidly freeing feeling and begins to take on some of his counterpart's personality traits when he's not wearing the mask. Sounds like potentially interesting character study. The title of the book, by the way, referred to the mask itself and not the character as it's about seeing what the mask does to the various people who wear it. And, spoiler alert, but Stanley's killed in the first miniseries, and there are several thereafter. Whoever wears the mask is referred to as Big Head, not The Mask, as Stanley is in the film. Had this silly comedy version been abysmal, and I had known about the original premise, I would have rolled my eyes, as I have with a dozen other properties Hollywood seems not to get, and said if they had just stuck with the original idea, there may have been a good movie here. But as I said, New Line tried to do this as a horror film, and it was only after three scripts that just weren't working that they finally went with Russell's ideas doing it as a comedy with Jim Carrey. And lo and behold, it mostly works. Part of that, though, is because Russell didn't throw the entire original mask idea away. He kept the look of the mask, the almost grotesquely abnormally sized head, the impossibly huge teeth, and as Russell points out in his commentary, and I happen to agree, his mask is unpredictable like the original. He's not a serial killer, but he's definitely not a safe guy to be around. He seems capable of anything, even if he doesn't manage to kill anyone. And if bullets actually hit their targets in this movie, he certainly would have at least killed those thugs in the alleyway after he makes a balloon animal Tommy gun that transforms into a real one, which is my favorite gag in the movie. Jim Carrey's not just silly as the mask, he's manic. Those beady eyes and that twisted, crooked smile are the kind of stuff nightmares are made of. The first thing Stanley does when he puts the mask on is get revenge on some guys who were bullies to him earlier in the day by playing practical jokes on them. And the second time he puts it on, he robs a bank. The third time, he tries to get in bed with Tina, the bombshell bank customer Stanley's enamored with at work. This guy feels like he could kill or he could hurt people or he might even be capable of unthinkable sexual behavior with Tina. His bullets just conveniently never hit anything, I think mostly because they're cartoon bullets. His seemingly dangerous physical humor is conveniently harmless because the world seems to observe cartoon physics whenever he's around, and he just happens to get interrupted by the police when he's alone with Tina. While the mask is the same kind of funny as a Tex Avery cartoon, he's also the same kind of disturbing. He never goes too far, but it's easy to imagine if he did. It's like the point Who Framed Roger Rabbit was making with Toontown. Manic and zany cartoons are fun to watch, but imagine if they existed in the real world and how unavoidably uncomfortable you'd be if you were constantly surrounded by pianos dropping on people's heads and people splatting on the ground and picking themselves up like accordions. Even though no one ever really got hurt, I for one would find it unnerving after a while. This Stanley Ipkiss is a fan of old cartoons, and that's a good idea for several reasons. First, to add to my last point, it gives him a plausible reason to turn into something similar to the psychotic character from the comics and still fit into a PG-13 movie. I'm glad this is actually built into the concept rather than just being a watered-down R movie with a lot of its substance cut out just to sell more tickets, like, say, Spawn. And secondly, it's a very specific hobby that tells us a lot about our protagonist. 
Stanley could very easily have just been a guy we're told needs a backbone and is nice to a fault, but by giving a character a particular hobby that accentuates those traits, it gives more weight and credibility to them. I'll expand on his characterization in the next section. And third, it allows Jim Carrey, who has often been described as a real-life cartoon, to actually be a cartoon and play in a world of cartoon physics. The makeup and special effects are largely responsible for how successful this is. This is another point Russell brings up in his commentary. He says the worry was that Carrie's crazy, exaggerated facial expressions, the reason he was chosen for the role, would get lost under the makeup, but the mask was built in a way that actually accentuates them. The entire thing, including the giant teeth, which apparently Carrie had to learn how to talk with, are real, not CG. It's ironic that a physical application seems to sell Carrie as a cartoon more than computer animating it would. But it makes sense because we get to see a real performance rather than an animated one that's presented as real. There are a lot of effect shots for all the cartoon physics gags, and they mostly still hold up today. The mask splatting on the sidewalk, the Tex Avery wolf, the giant heart beating out of his chest, and I was really surprised to learn that the movie was made on only an $18 million budget, which would generally be a much smaller production. It's a film that moves past its limitations and finds ways to use them to its advantage, like using a lot of real places instead of building sets. The garage scene was shot in the same location as the headquarters scenes in Ghostbusters, and going for practical gags whenever possible. And because we've got a leading man and a director who love these old cartoons, their passion for the material is infectious, and the energy they had making this film shines into the finished product. In short, it doesn't feel like they just went with a cartoon motif because they needed to tone down the manic nature of the material, but rather that the cartoon idea oddly fits this material, and that got the people working on it excited to make it. So Stanley's basically a guy who never quite grew up. He stays home most of the time and watches cartoons with his dog, and when he's at work, he lets people walk all over him. He'd like to stand up to people and have the courage to ask out beautiful women, but he's defined himself by his character flaws. He sees himself the way other people see him. Others don't take him seriously, and so he doesn't take himself seriously. This is best illustrated when he and his friend try to get into the Coco Bongo Club. They're not allowed in because they're not on the list, but you get the sense that it's really because the guy at the door has decided they're losers. Stanley's wearing a bad suit, he got stuck with a loner car that's a lemon, he gets drenched with water when a car drives into a puddle right in front of him, and of course, the knockout he's interested in, Tina, just happens to see all of this happen to him. And the more embarrassing moments, the more he assumes it's just fate, that he's just a loser and there's nothing he can do about it. His character arc is about realizing, through the personality that the mask brings out in him, not only that he could grow a spine if he really wanted to, but that everyone has a choice to turn themselves into the kind of person they want to be. As I said earlier, we all wear masks is nearly a cliché at this point, the idea being that there's who we really are and then the way everyone perceives us. Every person is some combination of the two. There's the person we try to project, because no matter how much a person denies it, I think we're all aware of and care about how other people see us, at least on some level. And our core self, the person we would be if nothing at all got in our way, like rules, ethics, empathy, and fear. And that's what the mask is for Stanley. But two things make this a little more interesting and take it slightly past the obvious metaphor. The first, and this is perhaps a wild interpretation, so bear with me, is that Stanley seems to think he doesn't wear any figurative mask at all. And he thinks that's his problem, that he really is this pathetic nobody, and if only he could develop some sort of suave persona, he could be happy. But he really is putting on a persona, because by the end of the film, he's mellowed out a lot, 
and realized that parts of the mass personality really suit him. The part that stands up to his jerk boss at work, and the part that has the courage to save Tina from Dorian. After all, at the end, he does most of the heroic legwork himself, and it's only when he needs to do the physically impossible, ingest a bomb that's about to explode, that he puts the mask back on. So he discovers a middle ground, that he needs to be half the mask and half nice guy Stanley Yipkis. It isn't that he's a loser because he's too nice, it's that nice is all he was. That was the mask he wore, because it was easier than being courageous. This point is nicely illustrated, I think, when Stanley goes to see Dr. Newman, delightfully played by the droll and monotone Ben Stein, who just happens to be promoting a book of sociology called The Masks We Wear. This is where we get the exposition that Stanley's mask is an ancient relic said in legend to have been made by Loki. No, not that Loki. Stanley tries to convince Newman that the mask actually has mystical properties, and he tries to show Newman what it turns him into, but he finds that it doesn't work during the day, which, of course, leads Newman to believe that he's a nut job. Stanley insists on getting his advice on whether he should meet Tina as himself or as the mask, so Newman humors him on the condition that he'll get out immediately. Newman says, go as the mask and as yourself, because they are both one and the same beautiful person. Ben Stein's sarcastic delivery is priceless, and it's one of the funniest moments in the film. But in an odd way, he's stating just what Stanley will eventually have to figure out for himself. The other thing the movie really has going for it thematically with the mask is how it ironically uses the physical mask as the opposite of the metaphorical mask. I suppose that's present in the source material as well, but I think Russell gets it and uses it to its full effect here. Again, the idea is that no one is ever exactly who they appear to be, but the mask takes away all your inhibitions, so putting on one mask you're taking off another. Masks are typically supposed to be disguises, but Stanley can't hide anything. The mask puts it all out there, shows everyone his deepest desires, and it also turns the superhero secret identity thing on its head. Stanley's found out by Lieutenant Kellaway very early on, and he's thrown in jail in the third act for being the mask, so everybody knows, including Tina, whom he's trying to hide a secret from like a regular superhero. I really like the subversive idea that in a movie called The Mask, the actual mask in question symbolizes a person being an open book. At first glance, the film seems to think that because it's based on a comic book, it must address the idea of the superhero, going as far as borrowing a lot of tropes from other superhero properties and having the mask, on his first outing, come right out and declare that he's going to become a superhero, right after he gets finished doing everything he ever wanted to. And it's really only at the end that we could call this character a superhero, when he ingests the bomb that would have killed Tina and everybody else at the club. But it's questionable at that point whether the mask persona exists anymore, even while we're plainly seeing him on screen, because Stanley seems to have such control over him by this point. Once he's nearly saved the day on his own, won the girl, and doesn't really need the mask anymore beyond solving this one problem, he gets rid of the mask, which seems to somehow be tied to the completion of someone's character arc. Earlier in the film, when he tried to throw it out the window, it came right back and landed on his couch, and I'm pretty sure that's not because it has the same properties as a boomerang. So the only explanation I can think of as to why it wouldn't come back when he tosses it in the river is because Stanley and the mask both know that he doesn't need it anymore, and that perhaps it exists not so much to cause mischief, but to teach people about who they really are. I'm speculating, as we're not really told that, and I don't really think we're told enough about the properties of the mask in general, which I'll get to in a minute. But my point is, this story is a one-shot comedy with a moral lesson, not a superhero origin story. That's not necessarily to say that a superhero isn't a superhero if he only goes on one mission and quits, though I can't really think of a lot of examples of this, and certainly not in superhero movies. But drawing attention to the superhero concept isn't a bad idea because it immediately gives expectations for the audience, which it can then subvert. 
In other words, it allows the movie to be more unpredictable. There are two women in Stanley's life, the bombshell who's dating a gangster and the typical news anchor trying to land her big story. Most of the time, a hero never makes it with the quote, bad girl, and would wind up with the reporter type, who's always unquestionably the good girl. The mask plays up that dynamic and then completely twists it around so that Peggy, the reporter, turns Stanley over to Dorian for a fat paycheck, and Tina falls in love with Stanley and presumably leaves the mob lifestyle in the end to be with him. One of the film's major flaws is setups that never quite pay off. There are two in particular I'll mention. The first is Peggy, who, as the film stands, gets paid by Dorian and then is never heard from again. It seems strange to build a character up only to use her for a big plot twist and then get rid of her hoping the audience will forget she was ever there. There's, in fact, a deleted scene in which Dorian kills her with the printing press and her dead corpse is printed on the front page of the newspaper, insinuating that the forces of justice in the universe allowed her to die for her horrible deed. And only then did she get the press attention she craved so badly. I like this a lot because it seems like a very comic book idea, and since she's supposed to be the anti-Lois Lane, as Russell puts it in his commentary, it only stands to reason to pay off her character arc by having her plainly not live happily ever after. Of course, this was cut because the studio felt it was going too far for a family picture. The other is the rules were given about the mask, which feel a little ambiguous and are worth expounding upon. According to Russell, there was originally an alternate ending written that would pay off the notion of the mask only working at night. As it stands, it seems like just a convenience so that the Ben Stein scene will play the way the story needs it to. Wouldn't it have further complemented Stanley's character arc if the denouement took place during the daytime and he had to courageously be the hero entirely without the aid of the mask? So we're told the mask takes away your inhibitions, and it doesn't seem to have any limitations at all, but there are places where that takes me out of the movie because I'm confused as to what effect it has on this universe versus how this universe was to begin with. After all, this isn't a supernatural mask introduced into something that resembles our real world. This is already a strange, fictitious, intentionally stylistic comic book type city, which the film names Edge City. Like Tim Burton's Batman, it's a place out of time, with gangsters and fashion and music out of the 40s, but language and some technology closer to the 90s from when it was filmed. People always seem impressed with the mask in the movie, but no one blows a gasket at the incredibly impossible things he's able to do. If he showed up in our world, people would be in therapy because he would confirm the physically impossible. Now, you could say that whenever he's around, if physics don't work properly, perhaps people act more like they would in a cartoon as well, because of his powers. Not questioning things like the mask's rubbery legs spinning around themselves when he dances, or the sheer impossible number of large objects the police pull out of his pants when he's arrested. But when he's not around, Lieutenant Kelloway and everyone else never seem to question the feats of the supernatural they've witnessed. Kelloway even takes a phony rubber mask Dorian plants on Stanley as all the evidence he needs that Stanley is the mask, without bothering to consider if he has these amazing powers without wearing it, or if he'll easily be able to get away from the police like he did after the awesomely hysterical giant Cuban Pete dance number. What I'm getting at is, yes, this is a comedy, but it's not a straight farce. It needs a plot device to give credibility to such a zany cartoon character in a live-action film. The movie clearly wants to be about something with Stanley's character arc, and the story, as simple as it is, unfolds pretty logically and includes characters with motivations that make some kind of sense. So the question is, what kind of universe was this before the mask showed up? where people are so complacently unbothered by a character who suddenly shows up and seems omnipotent in his power. Compare this to Bruce Almighty, where people absolutely noticed Jim Carrey's godlike ability, and we heard news reports about the global repercussions of the moon being moved from orbit.
Ultimately, I think most of the focus was put on making the mask a very distinct character, and everything about him works for me. Whether or not he's funny is naturally a taste issue. You not only have to appreciate the Tex Avery style of cartoons, but also the great silent film slapstick comedians. Because of that, not enough attention was spent on making this world itself believable. Don't get me wrong, the scene where the mask pretends to receive an Academy Award and Dorian suddenly gets really nervous because he's standing in front of an audience is really funny. I just think if the world itself was a little crazier already in some way, that kind of stuff would be a little easier to swallow. I also think a lot more could have been done with Dorian, the villain, who's your typical gangster, but had the potential to be more than that. There's a little bit of a parallel made between him and Stanley, in that both are under the thumbs of bosses they don't like, and are secretly unsatisfied with their positions. I wish this had been brought more to the forefront, especially since Dorian puts on the mask in the third act. Judging by how his mask persona is pretty much what you'd expect, generic comic book bad guy who monologues and uses a time bomb, I don't think he's fleshed out enough. My guess is that this was done on purpose to go along with the cartoon theme. He kind of does everything a mustache-twirling cartoon or old comic book bad guy might do. Ties up the girlfriend, puts her in a death trap, gives the hero way too much time to defeat him, and talks a lot. It's kind of like the girlfriend on the train tracks thing. The gag where he grabs bullets shot at him in his mouth and then shoots them back out like a gun feels like it's from the same tradition as Stanley's mask gags. Only his bullets actually work. But the mask doesn't turn you into a cartoon character, it turns Stanley into a cartoon character, and we were given a lot of solid characterization to explain why that was. So why does Dorian turn into an evil cartoon character? I get that he'd do bad things. But compared to Stanley's mask, this feels entirely uninspired. I can even buy the cartoon nature of Stanley's dog over this when he gets the mask, because he lives with a guy who watches cartoons all the time. Plus, even his mask is better explained than Dorian's. Typically, he's an impossibly smart dog and seems mostly well-trained, except he likes to jump on people. So when he gets the mask, he just wants to break the rules, jump on people, bite people, pee on things, etc. I suppose you could say the mask was made by the god of mischief, so everybody is a cartoon character because that's mischievous. But this isn't like the Venom symbiote in Spider-Man, really, which seems to retain some spider-like properties no matter who it attaches itself to because it got them from Peter Parker and likes them. This isn't a symbiotic creature, and we don't get the sense that it's necessarily even sentient. Okay, I'm going way too far with this analysis. The point is, Stanley's mask is interesting and Dorian's isn't. And I'd be much more interested in getting a little bit of character study about our villain to compare to the one we get about the hero. The Mask was a surprisingly influential movie. It introduced the movie world to Cameron Diaz, who's had a very successful career after this. We had sci-fi and action movies with a lot of CG before this, but it was the first comedy to do very much with it. This was before anything like Scooby-Doo, with computer-integrated creatures in a live-action comedy. It made Jim Carrey a lot more famous, showed us what he was really capable of, I mean, who knew he could dance and sing like that, and firmly popularized his trademark brand of comedy, especially his use of one-liners, Somebody Stop Me, etc., I find it very funny, and a lot of its ideas are executed brilliantly, but its villain isn't fully realized, and it's missing some important payoffs. I give The Mask a 3 out of 4. Bye.